We now return with a popular feature, Case Discussions with medical oncologist and clinical investigator Dr. Charles Vogel, who specializes in breast cancer. As in a previous program, Dr. Vogel arranged for me to meet with a number of his patients, and we begin with two women treated with endocrine therapy, specifically an aromatase inhibitor, or AI. First, a 61-year-old nurse. She was in very good clinical condition. She had a 1.9 centimeter moderately differentiated tumor. And back before Oncotype, this would be a patient that reflexly we would be offering chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy. So for these kinds of patients, up until Oncotype, the bar was usually around a centimeter. Correct. And so she, being over a centimeter, would have gotten chemo. So in a patient like that, are you just going to order Oncotype on everybody? Are you going to sit down and talk to the patient, decide whether you want the Oncotype? How do you approach it? In virtually all of these patients, I've been ordering the ER-positive, node-negative patients. You get surprised sometimes with what you find, and a lot of times it helps. And there have been published articles and abstracts now clearly showing that treatment decisions can change rather dramatically from what you would do before Oncotype until after Oncotype. So these are situations where the woman's going to get hormonal therapy, and the question is, is she going to get chemo in addition? Correct. And actually, those kinds of studies that you're talking about, it looks like when you know, the doc, like you looked at her, if you didn't have an Oncotype, she's going to get chemo. Other people you look at and say they probably don't need chemo. How does the Oncotype affect the decision? It looks like there are more people who avoid chemo than those who get it because, I mean, you still see patients who the doc goes in thinking this woman doesn't need chemo, they get a high recurrence score, but it's more common. They go in thinking maybe they do need chemo, like this lady, come out the other end, don't need it. Is that your clinical experience? We're giving less chemotherapy because of Oncotype. So this lady, she told me it was interesting. I don't know if you know this, but she actually went out and bought a wig when she was diagnosed with breast cancer with her friends, and they tried it on expecting to get chemo. Did you know that? No. Isn't that amazing? You know, she read the book. She's trying to get prepared. She has this nursing background. So she says, okay, let's do it. You know, she goes out and gets a wig and then finds out from you her recurrence score is low. Can you just talk a little bit about the presentations that have occurred now over the last year, particularly Kathy Albain's presentation, the last San Antonio meeting, looking again at ER-positive, HER2-negative tumors, but this time node-positive. What was your take on that? Her study was really a very important study for other reasons to start with. I mean, years ago, we didn't know whether we should give tamoxifen together with or after chemotherapy. That study showed us, although maybe the NSAVP might not agree, but her study convinced most of us that you should give the hormonal therapy after chemotherapy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, this was the study that looked at, again, postmenopausal women with ER-positive, node-positive tumors. And in those days, this is a while back when the study started, those women for sure were going to get tamoxifen. The question is, do you give chemo? So they looked at tamoxifen alone versus tamoxifen plus chemo. But the interesting thing is they had a third arm, so they were able to tease out, should you start the tamoxifen during the chemo or after? And they found the patients had less recurrences if you started it after. Not only that, but it appeared as though the effect of chemotherapy was actually abrogated by giving it with tamoxifen. And 
One could hypothesize that if you give a cytostatic drug at the same time that you're giving cytotoxic chemotherapy, that you could conceivably interfere with the effectiveness of chemotherapy. So this was an old study. It showed, again, what you just said. And then they went back and tried to get the tumor blocks from these women to see whether they could sort of tease out whether or not Oncotype would be useful. Yes. And the results were interesting. And while it was clear that chemotherapy added essentially nothing to tamoxifen in patients with a low recurrence score, it was still a 40% recurrence. And so what are you going to tell your patients? Well, you got a low recurrence score. Chemotherapy is not going to do anything for you, but still you got a 40% chance of recurrence. That's a pretty much of a downer. So do you want to take a shot at chemo anyhow? Yeah, chemo of a different type because this is anthracycline-based chemotherapy, standard FAC chemotherapy, and so it doesn't tell us anything about taxanes in node-positive patients. But there has been this whole discussion now over the last few years about the biology of breast cancer and how the different subtypes you know, respond differently to different therapies, and we've talked a lot about that on this series, but particularly the issue of the benefit that people with ER-positive HER2-negative tumors derive from chemotherapy, questioning that. And, you know, the archetype's been a way to look at these patients biologically. So, you know, you can understand the clinical dilemma of wanting to give a patient therapy. On the other hand, biologically, we know that not everybody benefits from adjuvant chemo. Correct. So getting back to this lady then, so she was very happy about not having to use her wig and was then facing the issue as a postmenopausal patient of hormonal therapy. How did you approach that? Well, we elected to go with an aromatase inhibitor, and one could choose an astrazole or letrozole. We chose an astrazole. For me, it's a very hard decision which one of these two drugs to start with. As I recall, she was having problems with arthralgias and found it to be intolerable. And so we put her on exemestane. We gave her about a month off of the anastrozole. She started to improve somewhat, and we then switched her to exemestane. It's been my impression, unequivocally, that a large number of patients will do very well on an alternative AI once they have had significant problems with another AI. And it's funny because I interviewed your patient, Linda T., and she actually started out on letrozole, had intolerable problems, and now is doing great on Arimidex and Astrozole. So just, I guess there's no way to predict. There is absolutely no way to predict. I've seen statistics, actually, that 50% of patients who found one AI intolerable have done beautifully on an alternative AI. And so it's been my policy to just switch from one to the other. Occasionally, you'll get a patient where this is unquestionably a class effect. I've also been impressed that the patients who do the best are the ones who haven't had a taxane. Have you found anything helpful symptomatically in terms of medications or stretching or anything that helps with that other than just changing the drug? We use non-steroidals. We use Celebrex. Sometimes that can get patients through it. And it's been pretty clearly shown that, like with anastrozole, over time, if you stick with it, the joint discomforts abate and improve, but certainly not in everybody. And in many, there are about 5% of women who just really 
you have to take them off of whatever AI they're on. Now, we've recently seen at the 2007 San Antonio meeting, John Forbes presented the last update from the ATAC trial that looked at anastrozole versus tamoxifen. I guess that's the AI study that's sort of the farthest out. This is a 100-month follow-up. Now it's been published in Lancet. I'm curious about your take from that presentation. There were a couple of things I was curious about. One was when they looked at years five to nine and saw a continued drop in the recurrence rate, the delayed kind of effect that we've seen with tamoxifen. Can you kind of go back through what that is all about and what your take was when you saw it? When I saw those curves, I was like, wow, that's interesting. Could you kind of explain that? I really can't explain it, but we saw it with tamoxifen that for patients who are on five years of tamoxifen, there's this carryover effect right. that seems to last for another three years or more. So you don't see relapses. There's fewer relapses even three years later. Correct. You stop the drug and there's still a drop in recurrence rate. Yes. And the carryover effect in the 100-month ATAC data seems to be longer than with tamoxifen. The other thing that he showed that I thought was really interesting was the issue of fractures and how once the anastrozole was stopped, the fracture rates kind of came together. And I'd been hearing about this for a while. They've been presenting their bone stuff and all. And the thinking was, well, you know, does bone change that much, et cetera? And then he and I were talking about it, and he said, you know, I think one of the things that might have happened is this time after the first report with the fractures, people maybe got more aggressive about monitoring bone and using bisphosphonates. What was your take on that? I think that that's probably true. We've certainly become more aggressive with regards to bisphosphonates, but the issue is not really as bad as one thinks with regards to the AIs. There was a publication that showed quite clearly that if you start with normal bone mineral density, no patient on the ATAC trial became osteoporotic. And very few of the osteopenic patients actually became frankly, osteoporotic. It's kind of interesting to look at the demographics of my practice. In a population of about 700 women in my practice, I only have 15% of my patients with metastatic disease. And I have 250 women who are on adjuvant hormones. And I think that my gut feeling is that by prolonging hormonal therapy in these ER-positive patients, we are at least pushing off relapses to significantly later, and we're seeing fewer relapses. And I mean, to demonstrate this, you need large studies that last 15, 20 years, and by then we're going to be doing something else. So it's a real challenge to deal with. I'm also curious, I mean, I know you see yourself as a, quote, hormonalist, because you use a lot of hormonal therapy. Any overall take as you look back, and obviously you had tons of people on tamoxifen, NAIs, in terms of just sort of general quality of life in terms of tamoxifen versus the AIs in the adjuvant setting. Let's put aside the endometrial cancers and the fractures, et cetera, just how people feel. I think the vast majority of patients really do quite well on both of these compounds. You know, I know the data that indicates that there's a little bit less toxicity, supposedly, with the aromatase inhibitors compared with tamoxifen in terms of most other issues, vaginal issues, bleeding. I think one of the problems with tamoxifen in terms of quality of life is that we're doing too many endometrial transvaginal ultrasounds, doing too much in the way of endometrial biopsies. That impacts negatively on quality of life. So 
People don't worry about that with the AIs. Hot flash is supposed to be a bit less, but there's no question that I have patients on AIs who really have significant problems with hot flashes. I'm really curious about that because, you know, we both watched the evolution of tamoxifen and just even the emotional reaction to that. I mean, it was a first kind of drug like this, I think. And the, the feeling that people had that it caused a lot of symptoms, a lot of vasomotor problems, et cetera, and that a lot of docs would say, well, I'm not sure I really see this so much. And, you know, how to separate out symptoms and when you're taking a drug for five years that are or not related. And I'm particularly curious about the hot flashes. Is it your sense that the AIs are about the same as tamoxifen? No, I don't know that they're about the same. I guess I'm swayed and influenced by the controlled randomized trials where they're really looking at that as opposed to just an anecdotal feeling as to which one gives more hot flashes. But I certainly see patients on AIs who have significant hot flashes, but the data seems to be relatively conclusive that there are less with the AIs than with tamoxifen. So we'll go into metastatic disease in a second, but since you're an evidence-based kind of guy, I have to ask you, bottom line, do you think tamoxifen causes weight gain? Evidence-based, no. Reality, most of my patients on tamoxifen end up putting on 10 pounds of weight. That's what a lot of people say. And if you look at the original trials, as many women on the placebos in the original placebo-controlled trials gained weight just about as much as tamoxifen. So if you looked only at evidence-based medicine, the answer is no. But a lot of women that have come into my practice over the years, certainly several years ago when we were using more tamoxifen than anything else, there was always this perceived notion that they gained weight and they couldn't get rid of it. Final question about adjuvant therapy. We've had Rowan Shablowski on this series talking about the wind study and dietary fat and in our colon series we've been talking about the issue of cancer recurrence and exercise and diet. What's your take on that and is this something that you're bringing up to your adjuvant patients? Well, in the wind study, it was kind of interesting that it wasn't the patients who you really thought were going to benefit. And Which would be the ER positive. The ER positive patients really did not benefit from the low-fat diet. I guess the thinking was ER positive, eat less fat, lower serum estradiol or something. Yeah, and less weight gain, less fat, less aromatase. right, less circulating estrogens. And so it was a surprise. And I don't know how Rowan explains it. Insulin growth factor. Uh-huh. Anyhow, but bottom line is, is it enough for you? Because people have also said, well, I don't want to tell my patients to not gain weight because if they can't, they'll feel guilty if they have a recurrence, et cetera. What do you actually do in your practice? Do you mention it to the patients or not? Yes, I do. I try to encourage them to lose weight. We have a dietitian in the practice, and we refer them for counseling. How much good it does, I'm not entirely certain. It depends on motivation. 